Congregation, for the preaching of God's holy word, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3, the first 10 verses, which comprise the whole chapter. Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And this is not human literature, but the word of the living God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. He called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when one takes a closer look at the book of Jonah, he will soon discover that this book is not primarily about the prophet called Jonah, nor is it about a big fish, but it is about the sovereign God who rules heaven and earth. It tells us more about this God and how we should live before him. Jonah was a prophet in Israel about 800 years before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jonah was called by God for a special mission, as we read in chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Of course, we know how the story goes. We know what Jonah did, that he initially did not obey God, but that he boarded a ship that went the opposite direction 
of where God wanted him to go in order to flee from the presence of the Lord, which, of course, was, always is, and always will be a futile endeavor. And the sovereign God brings about the massive storm during which he converts the sailors on the ship and has them hurl Jonah into the stormy sea. Then God himself rescues Jonah through an enormous fish that swallows and keeps him in its belly for three days. From there, Jonah prays his prayer of repentance and prays to the living and true God. And God hears his prayer. And as it says at the end of chapter 2, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And this is where we are this morning. Jonah is on dry land, and in this third chapter, we will look at the events that follow in chronological order. We will first look at God's second call to Jonah. Then we will look at Jonah's obedience. Thirdly, we will look at the conversion of Nineveh. And then fourthly, because I have to mess it up a little bit with your three points, we have four. The fourth point is God relents. First, God's second call to Jonah. Now, after the turmoil of the first two chapters, chapter 3 confronts us right away with the immeasurable grace of the living and true God when it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. There's something we must not miss here. Because I know myself and you know yourself. If we entrust somebody with something and he blows it as massively as Jonah did, we usually say, no, you're not trustworthy. I'm going to find somebody else to do what you weren't capable or willing of doing. But you have to see what's happening here. After Jonah's open rebellion and his defiance against the living and true God, not only does God uh, save him, lead him to repentance and put him back on his feet again, which would be immeasurable in grace and mercy anyway. No, he fully reinstates Jonah and repeats his call for him to go to Nineveh. There is, though, one little difference between the first and the second call that Jonah received, which sadly the English Standard Version misses completely, perhaps because it is only one letter of change in the Hebrew. In chapter 1, God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh and to cry against it. That was the first call. Jonah must cry against Nineveh. But now in chapter 3, he tells him to cry to it or unto it. Now, I don't want to read too much into this minor difference, 
but there seems to be now more expressly the option of mercy included. It is no more a word against Nineveh solely, which seems only to imply judgment. But there is now a word to Nineveh that seems to imply either judgment or repentance, depending on how Nineveh reacts. Now, much has happened in Jonah's life just in the preceding days. He has learned about the impossibility of fleeing from the living and true God. He has learned much about the sovereignty of this God, and he is now learning about the grace of this God. In a sense, Jonah becomes a sign for the gospel as the New Testament records in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus says to the hostile crowds, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then verse 32, the man of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing Israel's unbelief as the people demanded signs. They demanded miracles. They wanted to see spectacles. And then, yes, then they would believe, they say. But Christ tells them that they won't receive such signs except, as he says, for the sign of Jonah. You have to understand <clears throat> that the whole of Christ's life on earth testified as to who he was. But there was indeed a sign for them which they completely missed. And that sign was what is called the sign of Jonah. Christ's death, his three days in the grave, and his resurrection pictured through Noah and the great fish. And he warns, Christ does, he warns the Israelites that the very people of Nineveh will condemn them at the day of judgment because although they were not God's covenant people, they did repent. And they only had Jonah, the sign. But Israel had the real thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they did not Repent. Beloved, the Ninevites will also stand up against many in this generation and in this nation, even in the city that has had so much sound preaching, so much gospel witness over the decades. 
not only preaching of the sign of Jonah, but of Christ himself, who became, who was the real thing which Jonah lived or talked about. And we threw it all away. The Ninevites will stand up against us too. Us who are here today, if we do not bow our knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not enough to keep saying, well, I'm part of God's covenant people. I'm part of the church. I'm baptized. I went to Christian school. I grew up in a Reformed family. It will not be enough. The Israelites did the same. You will have to bow your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to declare yourself bankrupt. And you have plead for mercy in Jesus Christ. You have to repent of your ways and run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jonah who preached the good news to the Ninevites became himself also or had become himself also an example of these good news for God's grace in Jesus Christ. Just think about it. That regardless of his past sin and rebellion, God starts completely afresh with him and even makes him a prophetic picture for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If that's not grace abounding for the chief of sinners, I don't know what is. If that's not encouraging for you, I don't know what is. Because I, as well as you, know the voice of Satan, who constantly keeps reminding us of what we did. Constantly tells us that we can possibly not be good enough to be saved in Jesus Christ. I'm sure he tried to pull the same one on Jonah. And there's only one answer for it. And the answer is this. I know I'm not good enough. But I know one who is good enough. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And where he is, I want to be as well. That is the only answer to the whisperings of the evil one and to the world around us. You look into the mirror and you ask yourself, who are you? How can you proclaim Christ or confess Christ and go to church and yet you do this, you do that, you do the other? How could you do that or this or the other in the past? I tell you why. Because without, uh, without Christ we are nothing. And with Christ... We are everything. And the next time the devil whispers into your ear, but you're so bad, you only ask what's new. Jesus Christ is the answer. Sing the doxology. Sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ. That sends the devil packing every time. God forgives. God forgives Jonah and he disregards the past and he fully reinstates and, and uses again even better and matured Jonah. Such is our gracious God. 
And this leads us right into our second point. Jonah's obedience. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now here we can learn two valuable lessons. The first one being the lesson phrased out in Romans chapter 11 verse 29. That the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You cannot disappoint God. You cannot disappoint God. God's calling, God's true calling will never be frustrated in any way, shape, or form. He called Jonah to preach to Nineveh, and Jonah it's going to be. This also is a little side note in our dealings with ministers. Dealings with church offices, with elders, with deacons. We tend to think they have to be perfect. And when they come, we are all excited. And then, lo and behold, they show sin and weakness. God is more gracious than we are. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This is the first lesson. The second lesson is this. God's discipline always works. Here we see actually in the life of Jonah or in this ministry of Jonah, we see the anatomy of God's discipline through hardship. I know nobody likes hardship. Our society has no concept for suffering. We have no, no use for any suffering, for any hardship. You see, Jonah had sinned by rebelling against God, by his uh, rebelling against the command to go to Nineveh. And now we see that not only is Jonah fully forgiven and restored, but he's now also a different man. He matured. Now see how he reacts now to the second call to go to Nineveh. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And here it comes in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. There's no discussion, there's no second guessing, there's no second thoughts, there's no conversing with others. God speaks and he obeys. That's a different Jonah for sure. And he goes into the city and does exactly what God tells him. It says he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What has happened? What what was it that changed Jonah? The answer, beloved, is one that we do not like to hear. It is not the one that we want to hear. The means that God uses to mature and to prepare Jonah, to prepare him for this difficult task ahead of him, is severe suffering and hardship. You can clearly trace that through the first three chapters of the book. First, an immature, rebellious Jonah, an an immature man, a a hard-headed man, and then severe fear, suffering, and hardship, and then voila, a matured, grateful, and obedient 
Jonah. Isn't that the life story for many of us? How we matured in the faith? How we thought we can do life our way? Rebelled? We're cocky, entitled? And then hardship. God breaks us. God teaches us not only humility, he teaches us gratitude and trust in him. You know what hardship does also? It weans us off from the world. Hardship, beloved, is a means of grace for the Christian. It is always a means of grace. Don't ever tell a Christian, this might be a blessing in disguise. No, you can tell him, this is a blessing in disguise, because every hardship also falls under Romans 8.28. That all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Always. Hardship is God's choice instrument to mature us, to conform us, to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, to prepare us for eternity. This is why I keep preaching that suffering and hardship are gifts from God, means of grace to sanctify you. And some of you are in hardship. Some of you right now, I know, are in severe darkness. Let me read something of a reminder for you from Hebrews chapter 12, where he encourages you this morning, now here at Trinity Church, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters, of course, for that matter? And then it quotes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So you may ask yourself, I'm a Christian, I try to please the Lord, and here I find myself in the darkness. Maybe you've been from one darkness to the next darkness, and maybe the next darkness is already looming. What's wrong with you? And I'm telling you nothing. This is a sign that you are a child of God. You should be far more worried if there's never hardship, if there's never challenge for your faith, if there's never trouble in your life. Then I would be worried about you. But the scripture again and again and again shows us that hardship is a part of the Christian life, and not only that, but a sign of God's love for you. Well, that's countercultural, is it not? But God doesn't care about culture. Culture has to care about God. Culture has to be interpreted by God's word. And not God's word through culture and our preferences. But let us now look what Jonah's ministry has as an impact on the people of Nineveh. And let me tell you, the Ninevites were a cruel, cruel people. They had done horrible things to Israel. So let's not be too judgmental about Jonah. Undoubtedly he had sinned against God because when God speaks we obey and that's that. But you have to understand the Ninevites were feared for their cruelty. They had severely, severely committed uh, excessive crimes on the peoples around them. But see what happens here. The conversion of Nineveh, our third point. 
Beginning in verse 5, we see the most wondrous thing where it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now from an uh, infamously violent and cruel pagan people, one would expect many things and many reactions to the preaching of God's truth, but not exactly immediate heartfelt uh, repentance, corporate repentance. And this also shows us how little we believe in the power of the proclaimed word of God because we, we, we see these things and we think they cannot happen again. We, we, we think this cannot happen. A hardened people cannot, through the preaching of God, be softened and drawn to God. Now, this uh, severe reaction on the side of the Ninevites was not just superficial embarrassment for being caught. This was true, heartfelt repentance for sinning against the living and true God, something that Israel never displayed. Now, how do I know this? Well, first of all, they truly mourn over their sin. There is true sorrow over it. As it says, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You see, there is a false kind of repentance that only grieves over the consequences of sin for being caught or for being exposed, but not over offending the holy God. True repentance results in true grief. There is no tendency with true repentance to cover up sin or to move on quickly as we often see it in our own churches where sin so often is minimized and the word grace is abused to cover up sin that has to be dealt with. Oh, how often have I heard it when I spoke about sin in our congregations. Where's the grace? The grace, beloved, is in the forgiveness in that sin for the repentant sinner. The grace cannot be in the covering up of it. The grace cannot be in acting as if there was no sin. Love is not that. That is hatred. Love is to address the sin. Love is to help the sinner to gain repentance and to be restored to the living and true God, not to cover up. Covering up sin is people-pleasing. It's about you, not about the sinner, and it's not about God. It has to be said. I see far too much covering up and far too little Christian dealing with sin, leading the sinner to true repentance, restoring him, having enough love to address him, and not letting him go down the tubes just because we're too comfortable not addressing sin. It cannot be like that. The Ninevites, they truly repent. Look how the king of Nineveh reacts to Jonah's preaching in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. My dear friends, here we have a pagan king, a cruel, a feared king, who suddenly humbles himself before the king of kings and before his own people. And he sets an example. He sets an example of repentance. Yes, these things have happened in history. And they will happen again. 
And that's why we are supposed to pray for our leaders. As little as we may like them and what they're doing, we have to pray for exactly this to happen, for them to repent, for them to put themselves into ash and sackcloth and to be an example of repentance before the living God and before their people. And it says in verse 7, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. How far is this mindset? What a shame it is for us. How seldom do we as ministers and elders stand before our congregations and ask for forgiveness for our own sins. Now we expect that of a president. We expect that of governors. We expect it of our own leaders. If we ourselves don't do it, how often do you hear people around you ask you or others for forgiveness? Oh, we are quickly to say, oh, forgive us our many sins. We are quickly to say, oh, yes, I'm a sinner. But let me ask you, what is this specific sins that you are wrestling with? How have you wronged your brother? And have you asked him for forgiveness? Or does it remain with the phrase, forgive us our many sins before you eat a meal? If we don't repent, how can we expect of our leaders of the world around us to repent? If we're not real, how should they be real? If the church is paralyzed and gives no example, how can we expect the world to repent? Why do we pray for revival in this nation when we should first pray for revival in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own congregations? Leave the world alone for a moment. And clean up your own house. Root out all the pornography. Root out all the pride. Root out all the greed. Root out all the backbiting and the behind talk. Root it out and then speak to the world because then you have authority. And it may cost you. It may cost you dearly, but it is nothing compared to the glory of God that should be revealed unto us in that eternal kingdom of Christ. True repentance, beloved, humiliates itself. I don't see much self-humiliation in our churches. The Ninevites called a fast, even for the animals. They put on sackcloth, which is a sign of severe grief and self-humiliation. Do you know why our children in masses walk away from the church? touching a hot button issue here because they see that we're not for real they see our double lives they never see us repenting for anything they never see us in tears over our sin so they read one thing in the scriptures they see another things in their home and then we're surprised I don't understand These public signs of repentance of the Ninevites are heartfelt and real. Not, not like many of those in Israel about 800 years later, of which our Lord warns in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware 
And this is for us too. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Who are you when nobody looks? No, my dear friends, this was severe, deep, heartfelt repentance. Here we see God having mercy on a people and granting them true repentance after gifting them with the true preaching of the true word of God. You see, the Ninevites' uh, sincerity also has a second mark of true repentance, which is the actual turning away from sin. They do not only feel sorry for their sins and mourn and bemoan their sin, they actually turn away because that's what repentance means. The Greek word means to turn away from it, to change direction completely. Verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You see, there is no true repentance without the turning away from sin. And that's what repentance means, a turning, a changing of direction. The Ninevites were known for the violence. They were known for the cruelty. And so the turning away from their sins was a major mark for their repentance to be seen by everybody who knew them. And then there's a third sign to show us that this was true repentance, and that is that they call out to the living and true God. Verse 8 again, where the king calls his people to call out mightily to God. The whole city, beginning with their king, turned to and cried out to God. And here's an important statement that shows us they're hoping God's mercy. Listen to what the king says after calling uh, them to repentance. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So here we have a whole city, a massive city, a people who truly mourn over their sin. Not only that, but they turn away from it. And thirdly, they call out to God boldly in faith, but humbly. What a wonderful display of true faith and repentance from the king down to the lowest peasant. Now we want to ask What brought these hard-hearted people to its knees? What was the recipe? Was it Jonah's articulate preaching? Was it his eloquence? Listen to what Dr. O. Palmer Robertson rightly says. He writes, It was not the force of the argument presented by the prophet that moved the people. It was the power of God's truth that pierced to the heart. He continues, never rely on your own persuasive powers as the way to save sinners. It is God and his truth that people believe. You must remain only the instrument. End of quote. God had mercy on the Ninevites. And even if we didn't have verse 10 written down in our Bibles, we could still assume our fourth and last point, that is that God relents. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
I just said, even if we didn't have this verse 10, we would still be able to assume that God relented of judgment. Why can we say this? How can we be so bold to say it? Well, because we know that God is also the God of 1 John chapter 1, where it says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. He speaks it, and so it will be. And that's why we knew, even without verse 10, that God would relent. Why am I saying this? Because it also applies in our lives. Where we repent, where we humble ourselves before the living and true God, He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. The Ninevites repented, they humbled themselves, and God had mercy. Beloved congregation, and this brings us here to the United States. This is what America needs. This is what the West needs. This is what the church in the West needs. They need first God's covenant people to repent from playing church and from rebelling against God's great commission, both in our own lives and also in carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. Believe me, the building or the rebuilding of a nation, the turning to God of a nation or of a culture, must begin with the house of God. With the repentance of God's people to turn from sin, to turn from worldliness, to give themselves for the glory of God. First, Jonah had to repent before God could use him as an instrument for the conversion of the Ninevites. First, the church of Jesus Christ has to repent. We have to repent of our idols. We have to repent of our worldliness. We have to repent of our hard-heartedness, of our greed, of our hatred, of our uh, lukewarmness. Then we can bring this gospel to the nation around us. But until then, we have no authority. It needs the repentant and mature church to call out this world boldly and faithfully. Once it has repented itself, we have to call the world out boldly and faithfully in their sin and to proclaim the whole unadulterated word of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Jonah did in Nineveh. Not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but repent and believe, for you are on your way to destruction. The church must, through word and life, carry out the great commission into all the world. And thirdly, it needs a church that trusts her God and relentlessly prays for him to lead many to repentance and to mightily build his kingdom for the glory of his own name. America will never, ever become a Christian nation through the hand of the most conservative or even most Christian president or politician. We need Christian politicians, no doubt. I'm the first one to say this. But what we need most is a repentant church. Repentant Christians who stop playing church, who stop playing with sin, who stop playing with the world, and who finally obey God in all of their lives 
and to bring the whole Christ to the whole world. The church in this country has been refusing to repent for so long that it doesn't even recognize its own sin anymore and the looming judgment for it. And this unwillingness to repent is why we have continuously been moving the eschatological goalposts. Constantly. We have been changing our eschatology. The more lukewarm, the colder the church has become, the more pessimistic our eschatology has become. Why, why did we do that? Because now we can say, well, nothing's happening. The church is weak. The church is small. But it's supposed to be this way. And there is our justification. Instead of being kingdom builders, to looking at the expansion of the kingdom unto the ends of the world, into all areas of life, as we're being called to do. The church in the West, the church in this country must repent and tirelessly carry out God's given duty to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us, and then, beloved, by God's grace, we will see repentance and blessing and revival and millions and millions and millions who will repent of their sins, turn to God and cry out, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Oh, may God have mercy upon us and guide us to do just that for the glory of his name and for the good of his church and for his kingdom. Amen and amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our most gracious, merciful, and patient Heavenly Father, oh, how we thank you, O Lord, for your grace and mercy towards your people. And in your grace and mercy and in your patience, you keep calling us, keep calling us, keep calling us to turn around, to repent, and to humble us before you that we can be obedient servants who carry out the great commission for the glory of your name, for the expansion of your kingdom. Oh, Lord, how I thank you for Trinity Church. How I thank you for the brothers. How I thank you that you have provided a man suitable for this pulpit. Oh, Lord, now have mercy and continue to grow us all for the glory of your name, for the expansion of your kingdom and for the well-being of your church. Once again, we ask you, think of all those who are struggling at this time. Be with them, for we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.